This is episode 188 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Discovery and Translation at CIRM with Dr. Kelly Shepard. Hey everybody, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of which, who do you want to hear on the podcast? If you know a researcher that would make a great guest, then we want to hear your suggestions. Send them to us by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com or on Twitter at stemcellpodcast. Today, we have Dr. Kelly Shepard. She's from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. She's on the podcast today to talk about the Institute's mission to accelerate stem cell treatment to patients with unmet medical needs. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, want to be the sharpest dresser in your lab? If so, subscribe to Organoid News, a free weekly newsletter provided by Stem Cell Science News by April 1st for the chance to win one of three personalized lab coats featuring the latest peer-reviewed Organoid research and reviews as well as industry, policy, and science news. Organoid News helps you stay up to date with the field of organoid biology while saving time. Subscribe and enter the contest at www.stemcellsciencenews.com slash organoid news. And indeed, we are going to start off with an organoid paper. Uh, We've actually got a neuroscience-focused podcast roundup uh, this time, but with the one exception being the first paper I'm going to talk about here, which is about the gut. The title of the paper is an organoid-based organ repurposing approach to treat short bowel syndrome. This is something that uh, a lot of the guests on our podcast will certainly appreciate, including Dr. Hans Cleavers, the one and only, and also his disciple, Dr. Vivian Lee. This is actually coming from the lab of Toshira Sato over in Keio University in Japan, and first author is Shinya Sugimoto. So we know about the small intestine, and certainly a lot of our former podcast guests do as well. It's the main organ for nutrient absorption, right? It's got an extensive uh, system. You know, it's a very long, you know, tubular structure. If you stretch it out, it goes for feet and feet, very, very long, right? But if you resect it, if you resect the small intestine, it can lead to malabsorption. You can't really absorb nutrients as well, and also wasting conditions, one of which is short bowel syndrome, or SBS. And in comes organoid technology, which actually can enable an efficient expansion of intestinal epithelial tissue in vitro. You can actually isolate primary intestinal cells from patients and grow them into uh, organoids, these gut organoid uh, technologies as well, right? But reconstruction of that whole small intestine, including the complex lymphovascular system, has remained pretty tricky. And in this paper, they're actually generating a functional small intestinalized colon, or SIC they call it, by replacing the native colonic epithelium with ileum-derived organoids. And I really like their approach here. Uh, We were talking about this before the show. I think there's a couple of different approaches you can take to actually 
introducing these organoids into these in vivo models. You can either the scaffolding tissue engineering based approach, which is really pushed forward by uh, investigators like Dr. Lee, or you can take a more natural approach, like I call it. So what they actually did here with their organoid system is they subjected their organoids, these are primary intestinal organoids, to a rotational slash flow-like technique, which induces the formation of villi-like structures very quickly. These are uh, structures that they actually further interrogated using electron microscopy, um, and they actually look pretty convincing to me. So from there, they transplanted these human ileum organoids uh, to rats, and they were able to maintain their regional identity. They formed these villus-like structures in mice as well, so they got rat and mice, and they showed that just by simple biomechanical flow, you can induce the formation of these villi. It's it's really beautiful and it's very straightforward, I think. So the next thing they did was develop this rat small intestinalized colon model by actually repositioning the SIC, the small intestinalized colon, at the iliococcal junction. So where the intestinal epithelium is actually exposed to this stream of intestinal juice. Okay. It's this, again, this idea of constant flow that's actually conferring the enhanced function of these organoids, right? So when they relocated this subset of the intestine, uh, it actually created a pseudo-vasculature, integrated with the vasculature, integrated with the nerve system, developed these villus-like structures, and actually even enhanced absorptive functions as well. So you can really, I think that's sort of the power of these colon organoids. You can transplant them, and they're still going to maintain their function. And this is really, I think, promising for the treatment of short bowel syndrome. I think this is what it really comes back to. So uh, a, an organoid-based approach to treat a, a, a disease that's quite serious in short bowel syndrome. So I think it's a, it's a great, great topic and a great approach. Yes, yeah, short bowel syndrome. A lot of these uh, intestinal diseases, gastrointestinal diseases, they're, you know, ubiquitous, it seems like, and only increasing in prevalence. And I think it's It'll be interesting to see, right? Because it seems to me, uh, you could argue that that the intestine was kind of the birthplace of organoids, right? Uh, just because it's such a robust system. And we've learned so much about the in- intestine in vivo by looking at these organoids ex vivo. Uh, you know, it would be, I think, uh, agreeable symmetry if some of the, the first therapies to come out uh, in these cell-based modalities were were based on organoids applied in the intestine. And it seems doable, right? Because it's it's not like simple, simple tissue like you talk about in the old days with like making bladder or making trachea. Even those tissues aren't as simple as I think people made them out to be. But like uh, these organoids, they can approach the complexity in terms of the cell types and the architecture, maybe rudimentary architecture uh, of the actual a bona fide structure, but then when you put them in vivo, they can be um, embedded and they can it can have all the associated cells kind of migrate into them. I think it'll be a viable uh, therapeutic in, in the short term, at least relative to some, some maybe more complex unmet needs like your favorite, the, the heart. 
Yeah, I think the question is, how do you integrate these organoids into the in vivo context? Do you do this natural sort of based approach like they're showing here? Or do you take an approach like Vivian Lee is pushing forward and really uh, introduce these organoids with like, say, a scaffold or some sort of tissue engineering based approach? I'm biased. I'm, I would say, an old school developmental biologist. I think natural is the way to go. Um, and in fact, this paper actually mentioned that in another study published while this paper was under review, a strategy was reported by which to fabricate small intestinal grafts by recellularizing colonic scaffolds with human intestinal organoids. So they're referring to Vivian Lee's work, who uh, uh, they published that late last year. So, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, but ultimately, if it can help folks with, say, short bowel syndrome, then I'm all for it. Yes, we, we often debate natural I mean, that, it's hard. You're calling it natural. I mean, how do you argue with natural? I mean, none of this is natural, Arun. But, <laughs> yeah, um, so. you know, do you build it or you grow it? I guess that's the debate. And it's somewhere in between. I mean, after all, they're kind of building these organoids, but they're they're kind of building themselves. It's, it's a semantic issue on some level. But, you know, whether or not you want to put organoids in vivo, the applications of pluripotent stem cells are myriad. Um, and I have a story to tell. Uh, it's not my story. I have a story to tell. It's in Science Translational Medicine. It's actually a posthumous story from Susan Lindquist, uh, who died almost five years ago from cancer. She's at MIT. She's uh, listed last on this. I think that's a nod to the fact that the, the work probably began in her lab, but it was carried on, led by Li Hui uh, Tsai. Sorry for the pronunciation there. Also at MIT. This is a story that used induced pluripotent stem cells as a kind of disease modeling uh, application here. Uh, and this was focused on um, APOE. Okay. And this is really relevant because it's it's a factor in Alzheimer's disease. This is an Alzheimer's disease story. And GWAS studies have implicated lipid metabolism in a lot of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, but specifically Alzheimer's disease. It's known that there's accumulation of lipids in glia. Uh, and in fact, the most highly validated, corroborated genetic risk factor for late stage uh, Alzheimer's disease is this particular allele of the APOE gene, APOE4, uh, E4 allele. Um, and APOE is a lipid carrier. Uh, it's really important for trafficking lipoprotein particles that are implicated. You know, that's what accumulates. Um, in these pathological conditions. It's not just Alzheimer's, you know, cardiovascular disease, met metabolic syndrome often involves uh, APOE. And this variant uh, is a primary genetic risk factor for late onset Alzheimer's. Um, but the way that the, this variant of APOE alters the so-called lipidome of cells is not really understood. Uh, and until a work that began with Dr. Lindquist and was carried on by Dr. Sai, uh, set out to characterize the lipidome in specifically astrocytes that were differentiated from induced pluripotent stem cells. And here's the disease modeling part of it. They took fibroblasts that were either APOE4 or APOE3. So APOE3 is a variant that's not implicated in late onset Alzheimer's disease. So they took the fibroblasts from these two. This is like classic IPS disease modeling. They showed that the astrocytes in the APOE4 background, they accumulated these unsaturated triglycerides um, and lipid droplets more so than the APOE3 counterparts. Uh, and then 
this is where they went a little bit nuts here, I think, in a, in a brilliant way. It went all the way back to yeast. I mean, how many people can tell a story that has yeast, you know, I would say near the bottom and human near the top? Although I wouldn't say, you know, culturally, maybe not anymore. We're losing it. But, um, you know, it's a big delta there. In terms of model organisms, they went after it. They broke it down. And they can do this here in this case because lipid metabolism is so highly conserved. But they put in this yeast model where they express either the, the APOE4 human, APOE4 variant, or APOE3 variant. And they use that, showed that in the yeast, same thing happened, similar manner as to the astrocytes from the IPS. Uh, and then they unpacked it. You know, they, they identified some of the modulators involved in the lipid disruption and found a way, if you could short circuit that, they calculated using choline, which is a, a precursor of phospholipids, um, that they, if they supplement with choline, they can restore that lipidome to a basal state in this APOE4 variant. They could get those astrocytes to look like the APOE3. So, I mean, look, it's, it's not like, you know, with you, Arun, they're putting it in the, in the rat and it's functioning and we got some other stories coming up where, you know, the, the, the monkeys are doing great, right? There's none of that. We don't have all that functional stuff in here, but this is really basic, basic mechanistic with really high upside on the translational end here. You know, just think of it. You have people that are at risk, APOE4 genotype. Get them on the choline early. I think this is a, you know, may not be as big of a, of a bells and whistles, but the impact of this, I think, is no less. Yeast. Yeast, Daylon. The only time I like to grow yeast is in my cell culture. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Hope I never get to see yeast again in my cell culture. That's a nightmare situation for those of us doing stem cell biology, as you know. But, you know, coming back to the, you know, talking seriously about the yeast as, as a model system, I think it's so, so powerful. I'm just going to take a little tangent here. It's one of those systems where if you want to interrogate genetic function, it's, it's kind of like the Drosophila in a sense. You can grow it obviously very quickly. Um, you can, you know, do pretty straightforward, easy gene knockouts, functional assays and yeast, and you can use them as a workhorse. You can use them as a workhorse for a variety of different studies, such as what they did here. So don't hate there's more to it than just growing it in your cell culture. It's <laughs> powerful. It's useful. It's your friend. Yeast can be your friend. Too. I love yeast. I mean, I love beer. That's a, it's essential <laughs> for alcohol and all those pastimes. Um, but also, I'll say my first assay I ever did in the lab was a yeast to hybrid screen. And I elucidated absolutely nothing from that. But nevertheless, it got me hooked <laughs> on science just because of the idea of it. You know, it wasn't it was using yeast, as you said, as a workhorse, you know, just using it as a tool. You weren't even interested in what goes on with yeast biology. You're just using it as a tool. And I thought that was such a, a great lesson from science. It's just you're using these models as tools. And look what they did here. They they went all the way from the bottom to the top into the brain and probably moving the needle on Alzheimer's. Good show. Rest in peace, Dr. Lindquist. Yes, rest in peace. And now we are going to shift over to a paper coming uh, out of Nature Neuroscience from Dan Geshwin's lab down at UCLA. Also on this paper is Sergio Pasca, the one and only from Stanford University. 
ex, you know, organoid extraordinaire. And if Sergio Pasca is on this paper, you know we're going to talk about cortical organoids, and that's that's what we're doing. So long-term maturation of human cortical organoids matches key early postnatal transitions. The and the first author here is also Aaron Gordon, who I believe is also at UCLA. The key here is growing these cortical organoids long term. I think for a lot of stem cell IPS organoid cultures, the hope is if you grow these things for a long, long, long time, they're going to naturally become more advanced, more, I don't know, more mature. That's the hope. So that's what they're investigating here. They want to grow these cortical organoids for a long time, so perhaps you can use them as a better model to understand brain disorders. But uh, for the most part, and this is a problem across the field for IPS der derivatives, is for the most part, you can't really mature IPS derivatives beyond a fetal-like state, okay? Mid to late fetal stages uh, in the case of these cortical organoids. So what they did here is they actually leveraged a directed differentiation protocol to assess maturation of these cortical organoids in vitro. A whole lot of RNA sequencing and amazing data sets here. Um, they actually created a, a resource and a web tool called Gene Expression in Cortical Organoids, or GECKO, so be sure to check that out. So looking at genome-wide analysis of the epigenetic clock and transcriptomics too, and RNA edit editing as well, they saw that these 3D human cortical organoids can actually end up reaching postnatal stages. That's super important, postnatal stages um, after growing them for close to a year, up to 300 days. So they're paralleling this in vivo development, at least so they say. They demonstrated the presence of different known developmental milestones, including switches in histone deacetylase complexes and even NMDA receptor, which is uh, uh, pretty important during uh, early development of the neural system. So they confirmed this at the protein and physiological levels too. So it's, uh, it's showing that these cortical organoids, if you just let them go, if you give them the right protocol, they can perhaps reach that postnatal maturation stage, not only transcriptomically, but also epigenetically. I will say, though, that the limitation here is functional. And this is something we've talked to about with so many of our guests, Sergio Pasca, Alison Moatri, you know, who mentioned the, the brain waves and the, the cortical organoids. Electrophysiologically and functionally, these things are still not there. Okay. And if you want to, you know, bring up that controversial point of quote unquote a brain in the in the dish, it's not even close. But this study is showing that at least transcriptomically, you are pushing the boundary. And it's at least going to a postnatal stage, which I think is a it's an important point. Even for what I do with IPS cardiomyocytes, it's hard to mature them beyond that fetal-like stage. But if you give them the right conditions, if you let them grow for a long period of time, then maybe that's the key. And it makes me wonder, like I've had cultures of IPS cardiomyocytes that I've grown for years in grad school, like two years in some, some cases. And yeah, I did my RNA sequencing on those cultures. Still, nothing beyond a late fetal stage. But I don't know. 
I'm sure somewhere out there in the world, somebody has IPS cortical organoids or some IPS cultures that they've grown for maybe close to a decade now. And maybe that's just the key. You just let them go. You just let them go. I'm not saying you stay in grad school or do a postdoc for 10 years, but maybe it's like a hand-me-down. You pass it from one postdoc to another and perhaps 50 years down the road, if I'm ever lucky enough to have my own lab, 50 years down the road, I, I can do RNA sequencing on, say, IPS cardiomyocytes that I've grown for half a century. And maybe, maybe at that point, they'll be postnatal. Or <laughs> I don't know. That's the dream, right? But um, I got to get a lab first. So I'm working on that. <laughs> right around the corner, partner. You deserve a lab. Um, I got a couple throwaway points, and then I got some a real question here. One is the acronym here of gene expression in cortical organoids. It's not gecko; it's Geico, and clearly they were just worried about trademark infringement. There, I get it, Serge. I get it. Mm. Um, the other thing I'm going to say: you allude to these long-term cultures, which makes me wonder sometimes with these people with like year-long cultures. Like, what about the contamination in yeast? Like, can you imagine a bigger crisis and seeing like bacterial or yeast contamination in that culture? There's almost no salvaging or rescuing that. So good show and congratulations on just keeping these things alive and good luck going 10 years of ruin. It's never going to happen. And on that point, for a serious kind of input here, I don't know about this idea of just longer. You know, I feel like there is a certain, I mean, everybody would agree, I'm sure that there are fundamental roadblocks in maturation. But I would say that like longer is, is it's not it's not the strategy. Uh, and I think that there are some studies that I don't know how solid this is in terms of the biology um, that might suggest that like you can, I don't want to say short circuit maturation, but you can kind of leapfrog to to later stages. So I think that we're all wrapped up in this idea of maturation being a temporal thing. But um, clearly, you know, it's a it's about the niche and it's about the cell intrinsic potential and, and the combination thereof. So I, I wonder if if time is really the best uh, allocation of our effort, you know, going long on these cultures. Maybe we should be trying to unpack molecularly what defines maturation versus not. Yeah, I think there's that's maybe the the simplest way to think about it is, oh, we just grow them for a really long time, right? Because that's how we mature our own bodies, right? We grow for, for years and decades. But I think the key is really... Finding ways, finding molecules, finding functional approaches that can accelerate that maturation. You know, to give another example of a former podcast guest, Casey Ronaldson Bouchard is inducing the maturation of her um, IPS cardiac tissues by pacing them, forcing them to be functionally hyperactive. And that's actually inducing their maturation um, beyond what's currently possible. So, yeah, I would agree with you. I And again, I, I come back to the point. I don't want to be the guy who's growing these things for a decade, right? Uh, perhaps ultimately it does lead to an amazing paper, these longitudinal studies, but not always the most appealing career-wise, I must say. Yeah. Although you got to hand to these people that go along like that. It takes such commitment. And I will say that, like you said, maybe it's not – an amazing positive result, but any result in that case, you get a 10 year old cortical organoid and you're like, Hey, it looks just like a six month old cortical organoid. We need to know that. 
You know what I mean? So, uh, yes, good for you, the people who go long. This is a bit of a story about going long, i got to tell now. Um, it's about uh, Parkinsonian uh, monkeys. All right, and that's the key there. As soon as you're doing a monkey study, we're talking the long haul. Uh, this was a story uh, with combined senior authorship, Marina Emborg and Su Chun Zhang, uh, who are both at Wisconsin, Wisco Madison, where they've got that animal facility. Uh, and they've got the expertise there too. And there's some finer points in this study that I think I'm going to circle back to that um, really illustrate the elegant design and the, the real impact of a study like this. You know, we just were talking about uh, my guy, Tomashima and uh, Studer and Tabar, the, that triumvirate there came up with a really big story and another story also from Studer and Tabar in the same journal about generating these dopaminergic neurons and, and GMP grade and all that. We just covered that in the last show. This is a story that's going into monkeys, and it, I think it's a, it's a good companion to that. Uh, some people might say it's a competing effort, but I would say it's certainly uh, um, there's room for both of these groups, and both of these studies have a really upsized or outsized impact. Um, so what we're talking about here is transplantation, right? Uh, and the, the, it's, the precedent is there, right? The, the fetal first, but now you're getting human pluripotent stem cell-derived dopaminergic neurons uh, that have been translated, uh, transplanted into rodents, also into monkeys. Um, and, you know, they've even uh, transplanted into patients. There was the one patient um, that was transplanted with uh, autologous uh dopaminergic neurons, although that trial kind of, they halted that trial. There was also a monkey uh, that showed limited uh, motor behavior improvement. Also that patient showed minor recovery two years after the autologous tra transplant, but it's just not enough. I mean, clearly N equals one in monkey and humans, not enough to show whether the therapy is effective. Um, so that's where this group came in and uh, a combined effort here. And what they did was, uh, in terms of the design, I think that was really good. A few elements. One is they took uh, five, they took 10 monkeys, rhesus monkeys. And from five of them, they generated IPS lines from those five monkeys. And then the other five, and they transplanted them into those monkeys. And the other five, they transplanted with just allogeneic. None of these um, monkeys were receiving uh, any kind of immune suppression, right? And so the, the five controls tr uh, were tr treated with this established IPS line that was allogeneic, and the other five tr got all the autologous, like I said. Here's where I think the design, I mean, other real details, but the major point here is that while many studies have focused on um, young monkeys just, you know, for efficiency, they actually did two things with these monkeys. One, they started with older monkeys that were like six plus years old. Uh, and also they introduced the insult, which is this, you know, M MPTP classic uh, Parkinsonian model lesion. Uh, they introduce that and then they give time. They let it set in so that the defect and in in the pathology is established, right? And that's critical because that's what we're talking about with these patients. They don't come in with like, you know, hey, I just got a shot of MPTP in my head. They, they, you know, have, have these symptoms that have developed over a long time. So I think the design there was uh, critical in design elements. I, I really want to emphasize that because the result is just what you think. Uh, they show that over a long time, again, so over two years, with no immunosuppression, 
that the monkeys that received the autologous uh, did better, the allogeneic not so much. Um, and the, the data was really striking. I invite you guys to look at the, at the, the functional uh, improvement of these monkeys and also the graph data. They had really nice histology showing um, extensive dopaminergic neuron axon growth, uh, as well as strong dopaminergic activity, looking at positron emission tomography. And, and they actually have this whole thesis about how they can use the PET scanning to kind of predict, um, can give like a kind of prognosis on how well the therapy is going to do. So I think this is a big study that goes hand in hand with uh, Tomoshima, Lorenz, and and uh, Vivian's uh, their their work doing the GMP element, and I think this study uh, showing in monkeys that it really does the trick. I mean, it's one thing to stop the rotations in the rats, like Tomoshima did, but um, to show in monkeys that's really preclinical. And just just quickly, I will say, in, in in terms of like the limitations, there are still some. One is that because the monkeys are so expensive and scarce, they didn't do like bilateral. They could have like just blown out the 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 whole brain, but you know that would lead to much less function in the monkeys. So they did unilateral, and there's still a question of whether or not they're leaving one side intact. You know, that's not exactly the way the pathology works. So there's a, a possibility. I guess I'm doing air quotes that that functional hemisphere might be rescuing, but come on. I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask. Um, and the other thing I think in a nod to, um, Studer, Tomoshima, Tabar and other investigators out there, they're looking for a more off, off the shelf product. They do acknowledge that, you know, the fact that they don't give the immunosuppression, um, it, it could mean that, you know, that, that, that in the context of immunosuppression, allogenic or autologous do better. Maybe allogenic does even better. Um, so there's still something to be done uh, with in terms of looking at this in the context of immunosuppression, but that's super expensive. Let's just, you know, tip our hats to the group here. This is a major step forward. Uh, and we just keep talking about it, Arun. Every story, I think every episode, we're talking about these stories that are inching us, you know, closer and closer to the clinic. Absolutely. This is a really competitive field. I mean, you mentioned Lorenz, even my boss, Clive Svensson here at Cedar sinai is working on um, this area, stem cell-derived dopaminergic neurons for um, you know, translational treatment of Parkinson's disease. But I think the fact that it is a competitive field is, bodes well for the patients, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. If we can prove that this is really working and working effectively, then perhaps a treatment for Parkinson's using stem cell derived products is not too far away. I do want to bring it back to the, to the monkeys though. We'll, we'll talk monkeys for a second. As you mentioned, this is expensive. Not every facility has access to non-human primates. Wisconsin certainly does. Other places do. Chuck Murray is doing uh, non-human primate studies for his IPS cardiomyocyte injections. But if you talk about the ethics, it's I think it's important to talk about. I think a lot of biologists, a lot of stem cell biologists, a lot of scientists want to move away from using non-human primates completely. Do you think this is something that's like this study, for example, do you think it would be possible to completely eliminate the non-human primates from the equation, if you, if they if say that's something that you are ethically against, I don't know. I, I just feel like 
part of the reason that stem cell biology has really exploded recently is the power of these in vitro models that may be able to replace in vivo model systems. But for something like this, do you think replacing it is possible? I don't, I don't know. I want to qualify by saying that I cannot see far enough into the future. I can see about like a week into the future scientifically. So uh, don't ask me. I can imagine that the these organoid or ex vivo kind of cell-based models might do away with much of uh, the, the, the necessity for animal models. But I, I don't know. And I, my counter to that would be that this, you know, the, the COVID thing has really, I think, put into perspective the urgency of some things versus other. And I think that maybe the problem is, is that there hasn't been a very high bar for non-human primate research. It's been really up to the individual IACUCs or whatever regulatory bodies. And, and I think that culturally we're clearly moving away from, you know, chimpanzee and great apes, stuff like that, using them just because, you know, it's anathema or just so distasteful uh, at this point. But like, you know, if it, if it's if we need it, I say let's do it. Especially when we're talking about rhesus. You know, you tell me, you talk about it in the middle of this COVID crisis. Do you think anyone was fighting for 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 you know these macaques that were the the first line for the vaccination trials? Nobody gave a so and so. So I'm just saying that it's a bit of a moving target. In a, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need them, but we need them. So I say, let's use them. On a separate note, you know what else we need right now is a, a message from stem cell technologies. You could take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with mTeaser Plus from stem cell technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and iPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. mTeaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. Get out there and have a good time. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash mteaserplus. All right, guys, we're going with something a little bit different today. We have the special pleasure of having on the podcast Dr. Kelly Shepard, who's Associate Director of Discovery and Translation at the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. California Stem Cell Agency was created in 2004 when 59% of California voters approved Proposition 71, the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Initiative. That initiative created the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, also known as CIRM, to fund stem cell research in the state. You can read a lot more on the history of CIRM. We'll give you the links after, but uh, for now, just thanks for joining us so much, Dr. Shepard. We can't wait to hear what you got to tell us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all ours. Now, let's just start by a bit of review. It's been nearly two decades since the inception of CIRM. So for our younger audience, who wasn't fully invested in the game back then, why don't you give us a brief review of the impetus behind the agency, the people or political forces that brought it into being, and the work it initially set out to fund? Sure. 
So back in 2004, it was only a few years after the discovery of human embryonic stem cells. And I think at the time, there was a great appreciation for the potential that the science might bring eventually to uh, the field of medicine. Because these cells, it was recognized from uh, earlier work in animal pluripotent stem cells, that these cells had the potential to be transformed in the laboratory into cells of different types of the body. For example, neurons, brain cells, uh, pancreatic cells, etc. So this immediately opened the possibility one could imagine the ability to potentially regenerate or grow organs or tissues in the lab that could be used to replace the, those that are diseased in humans. And so there is a desire to study this. However, there is also controversy around the way these cells were made as they are derived from embryos that are created in vitro. And so actually at the time, there was a restriction of federal funding to create these lines and to uh, work on them in the laboratory with federal funds. So in 2004, the state of California put an initiative on the ballot for the voters to agree to allow California, the state of California, to fund this type of research to bring cures, uh, ideally, in the future, future cures to the uh, citizens of California and more broadly. And this ballot initiative passed, and in so doing, an agency was created to administer these funds, and that was the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM. And the funding actually didn't flow for the first couple of years because there were some lawsuits and some other matters to kind of settle how this was all going to work. But eventually that was resolved, and the agency was established, and a strategic plan was developed to decide the best way to spend this $3 billion to fund a uh, research into stem cell biology and regenerative medicine. And that's where it all began. I didn't actually join until 2009, but you know, um, that was the, actually the first funding initiatives that came out of that ballot actually, uh, were developed in 2006. Hmm. Yeah. CIRM has certainly come a long way and it's been a staple of science here in California and in all of mm -hmm. us, especially as stem cell biologists, are extremely fortunate uh, and thankful that CIRM is indeed here. And of course, as you had mentioned, it all comes back to the patients. You mentioned that you had been at CIRM for more than a decade now, starting in 2009. You actually mm -hmm. started off as a scientific officer, and now you're associate director of discovery and translation. So you've mm -hmm. seen its evolution, right? You've seen its evolution mm -hmm. as a funding and advocacy entity over the years, but not everyone is actually familiar with how CIRM works on the inside. And mm -hmm. as a funding entity, it might be a bit of a black box to folks who actually haven't received, you know, CIRM grants or haven't been involved in the CIRM grant process. Mm -hmm. So as a longtime CIRM employee, could you give us a day in the life, quote unquote, of Dr. Kelly Shepard? And <laughs> to our trainees who might be interested in non-academic career paths such as your own, tell us a little bit more about your road as to how you actually ended up working at CIRM in the first place. Okay. Maybe I'll start there with how I came to CIRM, and then I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson because my responsibilities have evolved a little bit since I joined, and also since um, CIRM has undergone a couple of changes in leadership during the time I've been there, and kind of the way we've um, addressed our, our mission has evolved a little bit as well. So the way I came to CIRM is very interesting because I had the traditional academic scientist training route. I was a graduate student at UCSD where I got my PhD in cell biology, classic cell biology. I got my PhD in 1999, which was the same year that human embryonic uh, stem cells were first described. So they were not on my radar at that time. 
I did my postdoc in Ron Vale's lab and I worked on microarrays and I worked on yeast. So even after my postdoc, stem cells weren't really on my radar. <laughs> and of course, coming out of that academic route, I think a lot of us are there thinking that we're eventually going to become a professor or run our own lab someday. I wasn't sure that was for me. So I started looking at the possibility of industry careers. But certainly one thing that I never thought or even occurred to me to think of was to be a program officer. I don't think I could have even told you what a program officer did or was at that time. I mean, I knew that uh, people who had NIH grants, there was a contact at the NIH they worked with and they had to submit progress reports and things like this. But I never really thought about who that other person might be or what they might do. So anyway, after my postdoc, I ended up finding a position in the biotech industry in a lab that was actually made up of engineers and chemists. And there were no biologists on the staff at all. And they, the reason they hired me is because they wanted to develop tools that biologists could use to make their discoveries in the lab more easily. And this company was responsible for making uh, uh, microarray printing needles out of silica uh, using um, <laughs> technology from the semiconductor industry, photolithography, et cetera. So the interesting thing about working there was we were entirely funded by SBIR grants from the NIH, and I had to learn to write grants about science that it wasn't my background, but I had to learn enough about that science to be able to talk about how we could apply it to addressing biological questions. So I learned a lot about grant writing. I also learned a lot about writing patent applications. That was a very early startup company where we had to wear many hats and we had to do everything. So I kind of got a crash course in applying new technologies to studying biological questions and all of this other stuff that goes into achieving funding and making your making it possible to do your science. Um, I ended up leaving that job and having my second child. And I decided not to pursue a second job until, um, you know, after I had the child and had her for a little while before I would come back to work. But during that time, my husband was laid off. He was working at Roche in Palo Alto, which shut down their operations. So at that point, we weren't certain what was going to happen. And we were a little bit worried about po the possibility of both of us being unemployed. So at that time, uh, my boss at the uh, company in Silicon Valley had told me I was good at writing grants. And he thought that I might be able to do that on the side, helping people out. So I had become aware that my mentor, my PhD, my PhD mentor, Dr. Michael Yaffe, had actually left his tenured position at UCSD to become a program officer at CIRM. And so I started looking into CIRM, and I saw that they were a stem cell funding agency, and I thought, cell biology, I know about cells. I may not know about stem cells, but they're a type of cell. And they're a granting agency. And so perhaps, in my, you know, in my naivete, I thought maybe they could hook me up with people who want help writing grants. Now, of course, the people who work at CERM can't do that. That's a conflict of interest. But by me reaching out to Michael Yaffe, I found out that they were actually looking for a contractor at CERM to write up a, a report on a workshop that they were holding on predictive toxicology, which was a meeting they were convening to determine whether there's a role that stem cells could play in predicting toxic toxicity and drug reactions and things like that. So they hired me as a contractor to attend that workshop and write up the report. And after I did that, they were pleased uh, with my uh, product. So they invited me back to write some review summaries for some grant reviews that they were doing for their tools and technology awards. So I actually attended those grant reviews. So people, they were putting out an RFA or a request for applications 
for tools and technology grants. And those applications come in and then they're reviewed by scientists from outside of California, the grants working group. So I actually got to sit in and listen to those reviews. And then I wrote up the public summaries that CERN posts on their website for those. And that really excited me because I thought that was fascinating that I could listen to all this super cutting edge science um, that people were proposing to do. And then I could listen to what the experts thought about that, what they thought the strengths and weaknesses were. And then they made recommendations to CERM's board of which ones to fund. So around that time, I noticed that CERM had a job posting for a program officer. And I decided, you know, given my situation with husband being laid off and not knowing what the work prospects were going to be, even though I didn't really think I was ready to come back quite yet because my daughter was less, you know, she was just a year old. I, I applied for the position anyway. And I went through an interview and I met everybody, although some of them I had met through my interactions at this uh you know, workshop that I attended, but, um, I managed to make it through and I was hired in 2009 and that's how I came to be at CERM. Hmm. So I can continue my story and tell you a little bit about how things have evolved. Or if you want to me to pause and give you a chance to ask a question <laughs> first, that would be fine too. Uh, we'll come in. That's a good segue because, um, you know, you came into CERM right around the time, as you said, immediately after the first wave of the funding was allocated and you mm -hmm. saw that first splash and the impact it made. But I, I remember um, we had uh, Kevin McCormack on the show for episode 100, which now is like a long time ago, but it was also long after you joined the, mm -hmm. the, the team there. Um, and one focus of the conversation with uh, Kevin was the evolution of CERM, CERM 2.0, and what that entailed. So maybe you could tell us a little about that, having lived through that. Why was that reframing necessary? What did it entail? Um, did it work? Did the shift accomplish what it set out to accomplish? And if so, are there like tangible details that you could share with us about mm -hmm. how that um, shift kind of came to fruition. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so bef uh, that transition came when Dr. Mills became, Dr. Randy Mills became president of CIRM. So up until that time, I had been working mainly on the basic biology side of things. So we had programs that were funding basic mechanistic biology questions. How do stem cells work? How can we make them do this? How can we manipulate them to do that? Um, how do we reprogram them more efficiently? Those types of questions, as well as the tools and technology awards that I talked about. Um, when Dr. Mills came and we we kind of restructured ourselves around getting things to patients faster and accelerating the likelihood of them getting there. And part of the impetus of that was Dr. Mills came from industry and he came from um a, a company where that was the goal is to get things to patients as readily and quickly as possible. So he brought some of that kind of industry um, know-how and uh, and structure to us. And also there were limited funds left remaining from Proposition 71, and it wasn't clear whether or not CERM would continue indefinitely. So there was a decision strategically to kind of put all of our efforts to align all groups at CERM towards the common objective of accelerating treatments to patients with unmet medical needs. And that included from the earlier stage research that I was working in all the way to clinical trials. So this is how I became involved in discovery and translation because my background was fundamental biology. But we were shifting so that we could teach our investigators who were working on the earlier stage 
the types of things they need to think about and how they need to restructure their research so that it will lead to a candidate that can go onto a pipeline that can then move into development and eventually to a clinical trial. So we restructured our request for funding. So rather than they were ad hoc basic biology tools and technology or preclinical development, we designed them so that they were kind of fit a linear model where we had one program that would fund the earliest stage exploratory biology. Then we had another program that would fund candidate discovery where you apply uh, your biology to lead to the identification of a development candidate which is a possible therapy that can go to a clinical trial. Hmm. We have a funding mechanism for translation, which is what we call early development. That's when you take your discovery you've made at the bench and you start preparing it for your first discussion with the FDA. You're figuring out how to manufacture your candidate using GMP-compatible reagents and processes that you're going to be able to scale up to the level of production that you're going to need to test in humans. And then we had two additional funding opportunities that fund IND enabling studies, which are the pivotal studies that you need to do to test your product and make sure it's safe enough to, to, to put in a human being in a phase one clinical trial. And then we fund clinical trials as well. Hmm. So we just structured these program announcements so that somebody who would come in with one of our earlier stage awards would be positioned to move into the next stage if they were successful. Mm. So I had to learn a lot about the transition of discovery to translation. And I've managed awards in both of these categories. So this is where I've really learned a lot because in our translation stage funding, this is where we're having our, our grantees, I should say, are having their first conversations with the FDA. They're either having a pre pre IND meeting which is called an interact meeting these days. And this is a very early discussion. That's where you get non-binding advice from the FDA about possible considerations around manufacturing and testing your candidate. And these awards culminate in the pre-IND meeting, which is where you present your uh, plan to the FDA for the pivotal studies that you wish to do for your IND. So we actually based me administering many awards in this space. I get to hear the direct advice that the FDA is giving to our grantees because we're invited to listen to those calls. And although we can't share the same advice, we can certainly gain an understanding of what the FDA is looking for and what they're concerned about with certain types of approaches. I have a pretty good understanding of where the FDA stands on CRISPR-modified hematopoietic stem cell therapies, for example. Um, I have a pretty good understanding of how they feel about pluripotent cell derived therapies that are coming up through the pipeline. Hmm. And so we're able to take this knowledge and we're able to help our investigators who are doing the earlier stage discovery research think about what's important down the road. This is one way we can accelerate, prevent problems that come up later by helping them recognize them early. I can tell you that one of the most common problems that we see is that people doing basic research in their lab while they're, they have an intent to take their work to a clinical trial, they're working with a cell line that has not been consented for that, nor been tested for the right pathogens for that. So you will do all this work with a pluripotent stem cell line, see a nice result in, a, uh, in, a, in an animal model or see some nice disease modifying activity, take it to a discussion with the FDA and find out you can't use that line. Mm. Go back and start again. Mm. And as I'm sure both of you know, not every pluripotent stem cell line behaves the same. There's a lot of variability among them. Some of them are better at differentiating into certain lineages than others. 
Um, so those types of considerations, you know, we're learning a lot of lessons around that. And so that was part of the two point model as well, is that we call it partnering CERM partners with our grantees to try to help them be successful. So we work with them closely. We try to identify problems before they come up and we try to solve problems as soon as they come up. And that's another change that was made in the 2.0 phase is that we bring in external consultants to help advise the grantees in these later stage awards to help try to solve those problems more quickly and make them more likely to succeed. Yeah, the focus really has always been on the translation and ultimately bringing these therapies potentially cures to patients. And there's various types of grants that, you know, CIRM is involved with, the discovery, translation. Uh, but really, it ultimately comes down to that forward-facing view on, you know, looking towards the patients and bringing these things ultimately to the clinic and becoming therapies. So mm -hmm. from 2.0 to I suppose 3.0, I guess, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, Dr. Shep, we right now we're in the the middle of a very exciting moment here in California. As you know, we had a, a huge election last November and it was deciding quite a few things in this country and in this state. And mm -hmm. they were eventful. These elections were eventful in so many different ways. Right. And mm -hmm. <laughs> stem cell biologists in particular here in California, like myself, I think really the entire stem cell community, even Daylon over there in New York, we were biting our fingernails. We're mm -hmm. waiting to see if Prop 14, Proposition 14 would actually be passed here in California, leading to the renewal and the extension of CIRM. And ultimately, the people of California spoke and decided to renew their faith in stem cell biology by passing Prop 14 by a, a thin margin. Anxiety relieved. Phew, right? <laughs> but, you know, I'm just, I'm super excited about this, and all of us really are. And to say I'm excited would be an understatement. So to start things off, why don't you tell us about this new and improved version of CERM? Is, is it 3.0 now? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so with this 3.0 version, what's different? So what's the vision for the next 10 years of the mm -hmm. California Institute of Regenerative Medicine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're all extremely excited by it. And um, it's a fresh chance to take a look at where things are, where the field is now and what the field needs. And it gives us an opportunity to go back and fund a broader spectrum of things, um, which wasn't a possibility when we were running out of funds. So we get to step back and develop a new strategic plan. And that's actually what's going on right now. Um, our leadership has engaged a team of experts from outside of California to weigh in all the different priorities and areas to help us develop a new strategic plan. But what's different about Prop 14 compared to Prop 71? There are a couple of important differences that I should point out. So there are some structural things, like there were some new members to the board added and things like that. But one important uh one important difference is that there's a specific set aside of $1.5 billion for for research around the central nervous system. Um, as we all know that it's been extremely difficult to find treatments for disorders of the central nervous system, including neural injuries and neuroge neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, ALS, Parkinson's, uh, Huntington disease. There's just a lot of terrible diseases. And despite a lot of effort in other areas of the field, there just hasn't been much to move the needle on that. So there's a specific set aside of funding for that area of research. Another important difference is that gene therapy has been added as an element. So in addition to the stem cell biology and regenerative medicine angle, gene therapy is now something that can be considered by CIRM funding. So 
as you can imagine, <laughs> CIRM is pretty excited to uh, develop a new strategic plan so we can start putting out new RFAs and laying out new priorities. So we're still in the early stages of that. So much of it is a little bit TBD and will come out later this year. Our board needs to listen to what the scientists have to say, and then they need to make some decisions. But what I can tell you right now is that we're continuing with kind of the pipeline model that I've described to you with funding opportunities to cover the discovery stage, followed on by translation stage, followed on by IND enabling and clinical trials. Uh, we'll probably be funding, uh, we'll, we'll definitely be funding more training programs. And if you want to talk a little bit about those later, I can do that as well, because I also administer the training grant programs. In fact, we um, are, this week we have a board meeting. Well, by the time this podcast airs, it will be in the past. <laughs> so you'll know if it was successful, but we're presenting a concept to reissue one of our training grant programs, the Bridges Awards, um, in the very near future, because those programs are about to expire. And we're also going to be putting a lot more emphasis on patient and issues that affect patients like patient access. And we're also putting considerable more effort into bringing attention to the issues of uh, disproportionate impact on certain communities in California and doing what we can to address those issues. So, in fact, if you look at our open funding uh, programs right now, you'll see that already there's language in there where we're asking our applicants to provide statements about how they're considering the needs of underrepresented communities in their research plans, and also how they're considering diversity, equity, and inclusion in their own programs at their own institutions. Wow, that is CERM 3.0 for sure. It's the, the <laughs> next evolution. It's, it's uh, important, I think, also because, you know, given this year and years past, the all the political upheaval, you know, the the CERM's got to be nimble, right? You got to adjust mm -hmm. to the world you're, you you live in. Um, but I have to say, I'm a little bit of a hater. You know, while Arun's over there with his ilk celebrating a nice <laughs> new pile of funding to draw upon for the next decade from CERM. Congratulations, guys. Get it done. <laughs> but we in New York are lamenting the fact that Governor Cuomo has proposed terminating funding for the equivalent agency over here, NYSTEM, for the balance of the year because of COVID and all that, just to like oh. get rid of it. Um, this is, you know, obviously due to acute stress on the government coffers, but it just, it makes me wonder because it's, it's not even close to the amount of money we're talking about with CERM. So it makes mm -hmm. me wonder about CERM with all that money. Uh, is it, is it similarly at the mercy of government reprioritization? Um, and I'm guessing, I'm hoping that it, it stands alone or is, is kind of insulated from that. But if it is not at the mercy of like big government, um, California state government, then is there anybody who's empowered to, or any small group or individual that's empowered to redirect the focus or funding? It's been a really long time since I'd had, ha I have had a civics lesson, so <laughs> I may not get this exactly right. But I think the way uh, Proposition 71 and now 14 was written is that it's fairly, it's somewhat protected. I think it would take a two-thirds vote of the legislature hmm. to hmm. really make some significant changes to it, which is unlikely in this political climate at this time in the state of California. So uh, I one thing I found was fascinating when I, you know, when I first came to CIRM and I got a little bit of a civics lesson uh, was 
exactly what happens to ballot initiatives when they pass. They become part of the state constitution. Mm -hmm. So the language of these propositions is actually written into the state constitution. (laughs) That's pretty interesting, don't you think? (laughs) Yeah, and refreshing and relieving. You know, I'm I'm relieved, I got to say. But perhaps part of the reason that people actually decided to, you know, approve Prop 14 this time around is because they see the explosion in amazing new technologies in biotech, right? And it's it's sort of a golden age that we're living in. There's so many cool and exciting technologies that are not only just, you know, outside of stem cell biology, but are in their intersecting with the field right now. So there's like organoids, tissue engineered mm-hmm. constructs, microfluidic organ chips, even like AI and machine learning, right? Yeah. And CIRM is, I'm sure you guys are thinking about this. You're mm-hmm certainly have played a role in funding some of these studies that have utilized these technologies. So even though the focus of the next iteration of CIRM is still going to be bringing therapies to patients, and as it should be, what emerging technologies in basic stem cell biology and and stem cell biology in general are you and CIRM really excited about? Yeah, you're right about that. There's a lot of really exciting advances on all fronts coming in, and the timing seems to be right. I know that part of CERM strategic planning is thinking about how to bring some of these different things together, because I think that's how we take leaps forward. It's really easy to stick with what you're doing and put your nose down and make incremental steps. But really, when leaps forward happen in science, it's when you're bringing different things together, different disciplines, different technologies. And so, you know, you mentioned some of these. I think artificial intelligence and big data are very important and um, being able to apply those to understand some of the information we're getting from our stem cell studies and gene therapy studies is going to be a way forward. And, you know, I think um, over the past few years, we've just seen a great deal and continued growth in the use of single cell profiling techniques, all kinds of different ones now coming online. They're technically challenging for people to master in their lab in the beginning, but they're getting where more more easy for people to to master themselves. And also there's more consortiums building around the use of these single cell profiling technologies and data sharing hubs, you know, depositing the data from all these massive studies. And then the advances in artificial intelligence to make sense of all of this data, because literally the amount of data is just, it's, it's hard to grasp with the human mind. It's so expansive, right? And it only grows more as we do more and more of this. Um, the other area of technology that has really advanced a lot in the past few years, I know you're all fami- quite familiar with it now, is the CRISPR and the gene editing technology and all the different things that have grown out of that, including base editing, prime editing, CRISPR-A, CRISPR-I. It just seems like every day there's a new approach to manipulate the expression of a gene, turn it on or off, uh, use them to study functional genomics. Um, And uh, we're actually seeing things going into clinical trials now using CRISPR edited cells. And it's just a very exciting time. Um, I just think, uh, you know, I think you're going to see aspects of all of this coming together and what CERM funds in the future. Yes, yeah, super exciting time. And we've been talking about it. It's really exciting for the patients, right? That's that's what we care about. I think we all agree. We've said it. Um, mm-hmm. It's about the patients or at the, at the very least, the, the solution to the medical problem. If, you know, mm-hmm. you don't care about people, um, that's mm-hmm. what motivates you, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. as we get closer to therapeutic application, we're seeing more and more companies spinning out the tech into the private commercial sector, right? Sometimes with multi-billion dollar valuations in the case of, for example, Blue Rock, which was purchased by Bayer. 
So mm-hmm. commercial application and profits uh, seem inevitable. And how does that square with the CERM funding? Do you know, like the, the commercial applications that were initially, like the research was funded by CERM and then it goes and spins out into some behemoth. Um, mm-hmm. does, is there any uh, portion of that money that feeds back into the state budget? Well, yes, there there are some returns that will come back to the state budget if something that was developed through through which CERM uh, funding contributed becomes commercialized. And there's information about that on our website, and I don't have all of it memorized, but it's not it's not a huge amount. It's not a deterrent. Someone shouldn't worry about accepting funding from CERM and get the feeling that they'd have to give it all back to the state at the end. I mean, certainly there there are some returns that will come back and will go into the state general fund to benefit everybody in the state of California. But as far as profitability, that's profitability is not something CERM really thinks about too seriously because what we really care about is helping patients. Whether it's a rare disease or whether it's a very common disease, we just want to be able to help people. And if it's something stem cells can make happen, it's something that we can support. Yeah, the focus really is Mm -hmm. on the patients. And um, another group of individuals who has really benefited from CIRM as a whole is the trainees. And you brought it up yourself. And I'm so happy that you brought up the Bridges program. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the role that CIRM played in my own career as a stem cell biologist. I'm really grateful to have CIRM fund my PhD training in stem cell biology at Stanford. That was the the program that I was in. And I've worked Mm -hmm. in CIRM-funded facilities during grad school and even now during my postdoc. And honestly, I probably wouldn't be a stem cell biologist without CIRM. And I'm sure many faculty postdocs and grad students feel the exact same way. People might not be aware of CIRM's role in education and really cultivating the next generation of stem cell biologists here in California. And you you mentioned it. There's the SPARC program. There's a Bridges program. There's even college and high school stem cell outreach programs out there that CIRM funds. So this mm-hmm. next question is really important to me, in part because I'm a CIRM-funded trainee who's hoping to transition to a CIRM-funded PI. So how is this next version of CIRM going to keep its focus on trainees and continue to do its part in growing the next generation of stem cell biologists here in California? Mm-hmm. Well, that is also part of the ballot initiative. And also, you can't bring stem cells and regenerative medicine to the people if you don't have people to do that. Yeah. And there's a very important workforce that's needed. Um, we need not only leaders in the field to advance the new science, but we also need technicians to help carry it out. And not only do we need people discovering new stem cell technologies, we need people who know how to translate that and make that feasible. And there's a whole side There's a whole side of translating discoveries to medicine that we don't think about or learn about in academia generally, and that has involved this manufacturing process, GMP compatibility, um, quality control, quality assurance. You learn about this if you go work at companies, right? But um, very few academic programs actually teach you about this. But since a lot of the most cutting-edge new medicines related to stem cells are coming out of academia first, and they're simply too risky for companies to want to take a chance on them at the early stages, a lot of the academic institutes are doing this GMP compatibility and manufacturing themselves. So that's an area of workforce need that is recognized, and CERM hasn't specifically supported that type of workforce yet, but that's something that we're talking about as part of our strategic planning, how we can target technicians and experts in manufacturing sciences and process development for cell and gene therapies. 
So I think we're going to see some new types of workforce and training programs coming out in the future. But for what we're doing right now is we're continuing the ones that we have been funding that have been successful. So as I mentioned, um, we're bringing a concept to our board to renew the Bridges program. The Bridges program supports certificate level, undergraduate level, and master's programs at public universities that don't have their own in-house large stem cell research programs. So places like Cal State Universities and community colleges. These programs support coursework and training at those institutions, and then they support full-time hands-on internships as guests in laboratories at either biotechnology companies or institutes with medical schools and large stem cell training programs such as you know, Stanford, UCLA, the UCs, um, a lot of the major universities. And so for the Bridges programs, about 60% of them go on to become technicians after they finish their program, and about 40% apply to graduate school for a PhD or, or go to medical school. Uh, we're also supporting summer high school internships uh, in stem cell research. That's called the SPARK program. And for many years in the program Arun was a part of, the uh, training grant program supported PhD students, postdocs, and uh, clinical fellows. And we're also bringing a concept to our board to restart a version of that program as well. So we're continuing our kind of academic track and research-oriented training programs that produce trainees at all levels, high school, certificate, undergraduate, master's, PhD, uh, student, postdoc, and clinical fellow, and we're talking about developing new kinds of training grant programs for other workforce needs that are going to be critical accessory workforce needs to bring all this research to the patients. Wow, up and down the ladder, funding every piece <laughs> of the puzzle. I think that's really essential uh, to success, and I would just add that, you know, science communication is also very important. Maybe you should fund a podcast. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> uh, just joking, but not really. Um, this has been really enlightening, Kelly. It's been fun, but also the insight into the process, into the kind of like, I don't want to say how the sausage is made. It's more like the details of what goes on behind the scenes in order to create a kind of public funding apparatus. And, and the proof's in the pudding at CERM. It's really driven careers and the science forward. So thanks so much for joining us. But before we let you go, I'm just going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions here. Uh, first, what is one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, but were never able to? Well, I would say that I have always been interested in volcanology <laughs> and I just haven't had the time or the ability to go out and explore all the volcanoes of the world. But I became really interested in volcanoes when I caught the chicken pox in junior high and I couldn't go to school and I was bored. So my mom went to the library and picked up some books. And I don't know, I always liked volcanoes. I said, why don't you just get me some books on volcanoes? Well, I became very interested in them. I grew up in Utah. I wrote to the Utah Geological Survey, hoping that there might be some volcanoes in Utah, not knowing that there were. There actually are. They're dead. <laughs> but there were some that were active as little as a thousand years ago, some small ones in Southern California. So I got really excited. I got the map. I've driven by some of them. I would like to go visit all the volcanoes in the United States and around the world if I can. And I just don't seem to have time to do that. But 
uh, as a side interest that developed from the volcanology is generally rock hounding and geology related things. So I collect rocks and I do get to go out on trips and look at BLM maps and try to figure out where I can find beautiful rocks, but I'm not very good at it. I have a friend who's a rock dealer and he knows way more about hooking up with the right people to find the types of things you need. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's probably one of the biggest hobbies that I I have, and I, I like to imagine that I could do, but I haven't actually been able to realize it fully. Well, Kelly, I think you did the right thing here, because I'm going to say it. <laughs> Rocks, volcanoes, that's old news. Come on, your career's <laughs> in the future. Move it forward. Super uh, ancient history. <laughs> yes, ancient history. We're talking about the future here. Um, <laughs> next and last, if you were not a scientist, that includes not a volcanologist, by the way, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? That question is a little bit harder for me because I'm a dabbler. I like to dip my feet into just about everything. But there are two areas that I'm particularly interested in that I think I could have seen myself pursuing as a career if I weren't a scientist. And one is I love studying languages. I like learning, trying to learn to speak new languages and understanding the relationships of one language to another. So I don't know if that's a linguist or a translator or just somebody who pursues that as a career, however you make a career of doing that. The other is, I think I would like to be a detective. I like trying to figure out how things work. I like trying to solve problems. I don't see myself chasing down, you know, you have to be a policeman before you can be a detective, right? I don't see myself putting on a uniform and, and uh, chasing down people and putting them in jail. But <laughs> I do think it would be fun to try to solve mysteries. So. Well, that's what you do, isn't it? I mean, both those things. You're you're a bit of a linguist and translating all the vagaries of science into language that the committee can understand and that makes sense. And also, you know, you are a bit of a detective looking into these problems and, and finding the solutions and facilitating them. So I think you nailed it. You're doing all these careers and this one you chose nicely done. And I have to say that we're all better off for it. Thanks again, Dr. Shepard. This has been a really fun chat and keep doing what you're doing. We can't wait to have you back on to talk about CIRM 4 and 5.0. That's going to be a big <laughs> splash. Uh, thank you very much, too. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. A really exciting and insightful look into this institute we call CIRM. You know, a lot of careers were built on the back of CIRM. My co-hosts included, it turns out. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the notes for this show, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much, guys, for tuning in this week. We'll be back in a couple with a new episode. Tune in for that one, too.